Uh, let's uh, take our Bibles together. I invite you to turn in your own Bible to uh, John chapter 17. Continuing in uh, the Gospel of John, and uh, this morning, uh, we're in the middle of what is called the High Priestly Prayer. I'm going to look at verses 6 through 19. John chapter 17, verses 6 through 19. Let's give our full attention to God's word as it is read. This is Jesus speaking in the prayer to the Father. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you gave me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. This is God's word. Would you join me in a prayer? A prayer for help from God. Father in heaven, This word that lies open before us, it is yours. It has all the authority of God Almighty. It tells us things that we need to know. And it exhorts us to do certain things. So, Lord, what we need right now are hearts that are eager, eager to hear from you. We need to experience the sweetness of your truth. We need to savor the things that you have said. And we want, Father, that your spirit would take this word that you have breathed out and planted in our minds and in our hearts and bring about the obedience of faith 
that ultimately brings glory to the Lord Jesus. Lord, as the one who's called to preach, I know that I have no power at all. It is all of you. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, breathe on us all. Plant your word in our hearts and bring new life and sustain the life that you've already given. And we pray it for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Some of you will remember that expression, that little ditty, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names never hurt me. That, that little rhyme has helped many children stand strong in the face of insults. But I think you'd agree, it's not entirely true that words, either negative and insulting or positive or and affirming, are without effect. The Bible tells us in the book of James that our words have great destructive power. It says that our tongues can set a forest ablaze, but it's also true. It's also true that good words, true words, but most especially Jesus' words, they have a wonderful, glorious, saving effect, a protecting effect, a joy-giving, unifying an empowering effect. As I said, we're looking this morning here at part of Jesus' high priestly prayer. There are really three sections in this prayer. There's the first five verses where Jesus prays for himself, and we looked at that last week. This middle section, Jesus is praying for his immediate disciples. Uh, and verse 20 to the, fall, to the end of the chapter, Jesus is praying really for the whole church, including us. And we'll cover that in a few weeks. But, but what struck me about this part of Jesus' prayer is how much he is reflecting on words that he has spoken. These words being the words that he had received from the Father. Those words are the ones that had accomplished uh, in the lives of his immediate disciples that radical change. This prayer seems like a summary of Jesus' whole ministry. Again, it's, it's a prayer, but it's, it's spoken out loud to the Father in the company of his disciples so that they would hear. And they heard, and John recorded it. Now, regarding the whole idea of Jesus reflecting on his words, I'll remind you at the beginning of this gospel, John introduced Jesus to us as the word who was God and who was with God. He introduced him to us as the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. And he is that because he is the only begotten son of the father whose glory John had personally witnessed wherein he concluded that he, that Jesus was full of grace and truth. And as the divine word of God, Jesus spoke and he accomplished the mission that the Father had given him to do. And just to think through this, the way that Jesus fulfilled his mission. Now, he did things. Jesus eventually went to the cross, and that would happen after this scene. He would be betrayed. He did lots of things in, in his earthly ministry, miracles to authenticate the word that he was saying. But in the end, 
In the end, the thing that would have to stick with the disciples was the things that he said and the things that Jesus said about the things that he would do. Those words would ultimately bring about the saving of God's people. So as we unpack this prayer together this morning, I want to show you five things, five things that were accomplished because Jesus spoke. And I'll give them to you up front. First of all, Jesus spoke to reveal God. Jesus, second, Jesus spoke to unify his disciples. Third, Jesus spoke to give joy. Fourth, Jesus spoke to protect from evil. And fifth, and really the overarching overarching thing that Jesus did by his words, he spoke to commission his disciples. He spoke to commission his disciples. Reveal God, unify his disciples, give joy, protect from evil, and commission his disciples. First, Jesus spoke to reveal God. Now, I I know that whether people admit it or not, people look for God in all kinds of places. Of course, we've probably read stories of people turning to meditation. Some have taken drugs to hallucinate. Others have sampled various world religions. Some people assume that you can simply look within to find God. And, and those who are on this journey, not everyone admits they're seeking God, but they're seeking the transcendent, right? They're seeking something beyond themselves because they feel that there is something more than just what is physical, But those are empty pursuits. Now we think about the time that Jesus was born into, that first century. He was born into a time when the known experts in all things God were Pharisees. They were self-appointed people. They believed their job was to tell people how to please God. They believed that they were the examples of knowing God. They said, we know God, follow us as we show you how to know God and how to please God. These Pharisees, these religious leaders were part of a a sect and their their desire was, was paying close attention to the scriptures so that the people of God would would rightly understand them. So their their motive initially was good. But over time, they grew self-confident, self-assured and self-righteous. They thought they knew God's book. They thought they knew the law, the prophets, and the writings, what we call the Old Testament. They studied it fervently. And to help God's people, they added many other things, many other writings and traditions so that the people could follow them and and just make for for absolute sure that they could follow what, what what the word of God said. They were confident in their knowledge of God. But you know, Jesus clashed with these so-called experts in all things God because ultimately they, these Pharisees, and in fact, all of the religious establishment in that day, including the Sadducees, they were the, the people who were attached to the temple, the priests, the chief priests, all of them, all of them refused to humble themselves and to listen to the very one that God had sent to be the definitive final word There is one and only one authoritative voice who is the expert in all things God. And Jesus is, as he prays, reveals this. Look at verse six. I have manifested your name. 
Jesus says, I have manifested your name. That is to say, he has revealed the character of God. The name of God is the reputation of God, the priorities of God, the heart of God. Jesus is the one who has revealed the name of God. And understand rightly, Jesus is not just one voice among many other voices. No, he is the main voice, the final word. Now, it it has to be stated that throughout history, the people of God have received the word of God through various messengers, prophets who spoke in his name. Moses, all the way through to Malachi and everything in between. But what those prophets were doing, they were speaking in order to introduce the final voice, the word of God who became flesh. The writer of Hebrews captures this. This this tension, it's not really a tension, but this understanding of of the prophets and, and how that relates to Jesus. He says at the beginning of Hebrews, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, acknowledging the truth of that so we can trust the scriptures, the Old Testament, yes. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. You know, it was a momentary glimpse of glory that Peter, James, and John were witnesses to, to Jesus conversing. This was in the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus conversing with Moses and Elijah. And I can imagine it would have been a startling scene. But I think they were given that experience there on that mountain. So in part, they could rightly understand the role of the prophets in relation to Jesus because when Jesus showed up on the scene, they still had great regard, rightly so, of the prophets, of Moses. But the Lord God needed to give them a picture of the authority of Jesus because this is what happens. As Jesus conversing with Moses and Elijah, Peter, in a stupor, expresses something. Let's build three tents Three tabernacles, if you were. Maybe shrines. I don't exactly know what he was getting at. But he hears a a voice from heaven, and it says this. While Peter was speaking about this little plan, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Final word. And they did They did listen to Jesus. Jesus prayed, the people you gave me out of the world, yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Meaning they believed. They believed Jesus because Jesus had revealed God to them. Because Jesus had spoken, God was made known. That's what Jesus does. When he speaks, he reveals God. Now he says in verse seven, now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. Do you see the power of Jesus' words? When he speaks, belief happened in the lives of his disciples. Now we have to think about this as we think about how this applies to us. Think about those disciples. Were they experts in the law? No. I mean, the Pharisees thought they were a bunch of rubes, buffoons. They're just fishermen, maybe a tax collector, a zealot, a rabble rouser. What are these people? 
And yet Jesus speaks his word to them and they come alive and they know God. And that's hopeful for us today. Where were you when you heard the word of Jesus? Oh, you didn't hear Jesus' voice speaking to you audibly, I don't think. But you heard his word in the scriptures. You heard him telling you, I am the Christ, I am the Son of God. You heard him revealing to you by the Holy Spirit that his death on the cross was for you. You heard and you sensed the great weight of that sin taken off of you when you saw with the eyes of faith him crucified there for you. And it didn't matter where you came from. It didn't matter your prior learning. It didn't matter even whether you had worked hard to figure it out. Jesus spoke and revealed God to you. That's why we we continue to keep our focus here. We want to reveal God through focusing on Jesus. If we focus on the things that he says, if we focus on the things that he does and the things that he says about the things that he does, in song, in reading, in preaching, we believe. We believe God will open the eyes of people and bring life. And for you who are already in the family of God, because you already heard that word, when that word of Jesus comes to your ear and makes its way to your heart, it's sweet, isn't it? It's beautiful. I'm thinking of that, that song that'll, not, not that old a hymn, but it's kind of an early 20th century hymn. Um, Tell me the old, old story of Jesus and his cross. Again and again and again. It never gets old, does it? Jesus spoke to reveal God. Second, Jesus spoke to unify his disciples to unify his disciples. Now, uh, whether it's a, a company producing some kind of product or an army defending a nation, unless there's a focused goal with all the players unified and the purpose of accomplishing that goal, the mission ultimately does fail. Now, Jesus was calling his disciples to a mission, but he needed them to understand that their ultimate unity was in him. And that was essential for the mission that he was calling them to. He prays, verse 11, Holy Father, keep them in your name. This is his desire. But Jesus speaking it means that it happens too, right? He prays it, therefore it happens. Keep them in your name, verse 11, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. What what an astounding picture. The oneness that Jesus describes of himself being one with the Father. He is saying, may they, his disciples, his immediate disciples, be unified. To to be kept in the name of the fathers is to keep the focus on Jesus. That's what assures unity. And I gotta say this. Unity is not something among Jesus' disciples that can be accomplished by some other means. Let me state it this way. You can't pursue, you can't achieve unity by pursuing unity as a, a goal in and of self. And here's what I mean. The Apostle Paul addressed a problem of division at the church in Corinth. 
the beginning of, of 1 Corinthians, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. See, the problem that they had was not that they had necessarily abandoned the gospel. We're not told that. Maybe they have or they've become lazy because in later chapters they're, they're allowing sin to, to have full flower among them. But, but there was a division among them because some were following Paul, some were following Apollos, some were following Cephas. And there was nothing wrong with those men. Their message wasn't wrong. But you see, they took their focus off the Lord Jesus and put it on the leaders. Their focus was away from Christ. And you might say, well, we're just focusing on, this is my guy. I got Peter. He's, he's good on the gospel, right? Well, yes. But he's not the focus. You can't achieve that kind of unity by pursuing it as a goal. You achieve the unity by pursuing Christ. He is the goal. And Paul addressed that same kind of problem between two women in Philippi, in the church there. It's in Philippians. He says, I entreat, I encourage, I, I... It's not quite command, but it's close. I entreat you, Odian, Suntiki, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers who, whose names are in the book of life. You see, there was something dividing them. We don't know what it was. But Paul urges them, agree in the Lord. It means whatever differences there may be between you, put your focus on Jesus. Go there. And here's the remedy, verse 4 of Philippians 4. I should have given you the reference. He says, rejoice in the Lord. Now, I know we, we take this part out and we talk about, about, about being prayerful. But in Philippians chapter 4, the context there is a, a conflict. These people need to agree in the Lord. Here's the remedy. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Now what? Again, it's all focused on Christ. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, and most especially, maybe in this context, that conflict that you've got, in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And what's the result? The peace of God. Peace between the sisters. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. How could we have achieved this on our own? We don't get it. That will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Listen, brothers and sisters, you think about Jesus' disciples and when he's praying for unity, who do we got in that company? Who's there? Well, you got the fishermen, right? Peter, James, John. We got... Levi, Matthew, a tax collector. And on the other side of the political tax collector, like their collusion with Rome, like, oh, I'll get your taxes for you, keep my bit. Now, Jesus called him out of that, yes. But he was sympathetic to Rome. And you got the other guy, Simon, not Simon Peter, but Simon the Zealot. He's not sympathetic to Rome. He's, he stormed the gates, pitchforks and spears. Let's go and take out the emperor. Matthew. Simon, same group, Jesus says. May they be one.
And they were because they put their focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, as believers in Jesus, there are, there are a host of things that could come to us as a church family that we would find a reason to butt heads. Opinion about this or that thing. We have to look beyond those things and put our focus on the Lord Jesus. Jesus spoke to give unity to his disciples. Third, Jesus spoke to give joy. To give joy. Uh, When I got my driver's license, the first car I had was this very rusty Toyota Corona. That's what it was called. It was a Corona, not a Corolla. I know, how timely. Um, It had a lot of rust. Um, No floorboards in the back seat. Water would come up, salty, snowy water. Um, But I remember thinking back then that I would be really happy when I got a a new car. Now, a little later on, I got a a slightly less rusty Maverick, a Ford Maverick, not the cool two-door kind, but the four-door, and it had no muffler, and it sounded really bad. It was embarrassing. Um, But I remember thinking, well, this is slightly better than the Toyota Corona, but you know what would really make me happy is a new car. Now, a few years later, got a new car. And I thought, oh, this would be so great. New car. That would give me joy, right? Now, that brand new car, it would just stall on the highway. It would leave us stranded there. Turn the key, nothing. 15, 20 minutes. Then it would start up again for no apparent reason. I took it in so many times, never to get the problem fixed. Cars, of course, will never be a source of joy. In fact, nothing temporal in this world could be a source of joy. But Jesus spoke so that whatever his disciples might experience in the world, they would know joy. Not a temporal joy. A joy that would transcend whatever they might be facing. Verse 13, these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy, my joy fulfilled in themselves. You see, the kind of joy that Jesus wants us to have, wanted his disciples to have, is his joy. And that's an amazing thing. That's an amazing power that comes to us through his word. Now, there would be reasons not to be joyful. Verse 14, the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Okay, so Jesus is saying, look, here's the scenario. The world's hated them. The world will crucify Jesus. They don't know that's coming yet. But they certainly would have remembered his world words. The world hated me and has hated them too. And so how could they find joy? How could they find joy? They focused on something, the only thing, the only thing in their experience that would last forever. Jesus spoke to give that joy in himself. Because while the world would pass away, the thing that would never go away is who Jesus is and what he accomplished. And this was proven out by the apostles. We find this in Acts chapter five. This is not long after Jesus has ascended and the church has just exploded. And the apostles, including Peter, they're preaching in Jesus' name and and people are believing, but the religious leaders are starting to get a little miffed about this whole deal attracting people themselves, and perhaps they're feeling a little jealous. And so they put them in prison. And here's what happened. 
They called in the apostles after they had been contained for a while and they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. Didn't like it. Let them go. They were beaten though before they were let go. And they left, they left the presence of the council, Acts chapter five, verse 40 and 41. They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. I wonder, I, I, as I think about myself in that circumstance, would I be rejoicing? It's a supernatural thing. Because I imagine myself in the scenario when somebody's insulting me or beating me down. And I wonder, could I? And I think in my own strength, I couldn't have joy. Not in my own strength. But by the word of Jesus, by his power, you and I in, in the same circumstance, by his power, could know that transcendent joy that would, that would be beyond the thing that they were experiencing in the moment. So if you want joy, like stoke this. Look to Jesus. Be reminded of his own suffering in your place. Remember Hebrews 12 too, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. So we, to find joy, we look to Jesus, whatever you may be facing. And I know in this nation, we're not, we're not physically persecuted and beat up for the name of Jesus. But whatever we're facing, and I've had to remind myself of this this week, Profound discouragement overcame me. And I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just the fact that these restrictions are going on or frustrated, not knowing. I, I don't know. Maybe just something internally. And I went back to the word and reminded myself, Jesus gives joy. And he experienced joy in spite of suffering. And supernaturally, that is for me too. I just needed the reminder. Fourth, Jesus spoke to protect his disciples. How do you protect yourself from an unseen threat? Now, if it's a threat of violence uh, or, you know, or theft in your home, you have a lock on the door, right? You have a lock on your window or maybe an alarm system, you might do that. Some of you might have a weapon. These days, there's fear of infection. So what does that look like? Looks like physical distancing. This. Some have face masks. Maybe there's a hope of a vaccine. The dangers are real. We have to take them seriously, not lightly. There's a greater threat that was hanging over the disciples. Jesus was concerned for their safety, not, not primarily from violence. He, didn't, he said, I don't want to take them out of the world. Keep them in the world, Father. But he wanted them to be protected from evil. The same thing that sought to thwart Jesus from his own mission, he prayed for their protection and he spoke so that they would be protected. His prayer was proof of that. I'll remind you, from the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the devil had set out to distract Jesus, right? 
He, he went into the wilderness. He, he was fasting for 40 days. The devil there tempted him to take some stones and turn them to bread. The devil there tempted him to throw himself off of the pinnacle of the temple just to prove to him, the father will bear you up. And finally, the devil tempted Jesus. Oh, just look, look at the earth. Look at the world. It could be yours. Just bow down to me. And in each case, Jesus responded with the scriptures. It is written. And Jesus assured his disciples that he would protect them going forward because he had already protected them. And he did it. He did it by his word. Jesus speaking his word to them was their protection because they believed it. Verse 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now, that son of destruction was Judas. He was lost because his apostasy, his turning away from, his rejecting Jesus was ordained by God, as hard as that is to comprehend right now. It was built into God's plan. That was known. He was not lost because Jesus failed. He was never found. The rest of Jesus' disciples were kept, as he says, in your name. That is to say they truly believed. But you know, it would not only be a direct attack on the disciples from the devil, from the evil one that could derail them, for which Jesus was praying for their protection. The very fact that they must continue to live in the world meant that they were exposed to the influences of the evil one. Those influences that permeate the world, and that's our lives, isn't it? I don't know that any of us here can say, I was directly tempted or assaulted by the devil. I don't think we need to know. But the fact of the matter is, we live in this world. And whether it's the devil himself, our own corrupted flesh and the desires that, are, that war against the spirit within or the world around us that tempts us. Each of us need protection. Jesus' disciples need that protection. He said, I've given them your word. That was their protection. I've given them your word. And the world has hated me because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. See, he knew they had to stay in there. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. And that prayer was answered. Jesus spoke to protect his disciples and he speaks to protect us too. How does he do that? Now, like I said, you know, we're not hearing the audible voice of Jesus, but every single word in this book, we can attribute it to Jesus because he is the word of God. This is always how God's people have been protected from evil. The psalmist says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Do you want to be protected from the schemes of the evil one? Store up Jesus' word. Focus on Jesus' word. You see, if you're a child of God today, it's because he, the Lord Jesus, has caused his word to grip your heart. His word is that gospel. 
The whole of the scriptures point us to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. The whole of the scriptures point us to the fact that he lived a sinless life. The whole of scriptures are given to us so that we can understand that when he died, he died in our place and for our sin. The scriptures are given to us so that we can understand that when he died, he bore the full punishment for your sin and for mine, for all of us who have put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and have acknowledged that he is indeed the word. And when we see and understand what his word tells us, that he rose again on the third day, we understand that sin no longer has power because he defeated it. He defeated sin and the death that comes as a consequence of that sin by himself becoming sin. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That same word that brought you near to God and marked you as a child of God is what keeps you. Jesus speaks so that you can be protected from the evil one. Delight in his protection. When you're faced with temptation, go to the word. When there's a temptation to bitterness, go to the word. When there's a temptation to defeat and lack of faith, go to the word. Jesus speaks to protect you. Finally, Jesus spoke to commission his disciples. He spoke to commission his disciples. Now, I've heard the oath that several of you have taken when you were commissioned in the Air Force. I do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I bear true faith and allegiance to the same, that I take this obligation freely, without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion, and that I will well with that I will well and faithfully discharge the duties of the office upon which I'm about to enter, so help me, God. Apparently that's optional, that piece. Look that up. But that's your oath, right? Those who have served. It's a promise you have made. It's your word to be faithful. It's your word to fulfill your duty. And it's important and it is good. I, I mean no disrespect but it is fundamentally different from the way that Jesus commissioned his disciples. You see, he didn't ask them to swear an oath. Jesus effectively made the oath. He set his disciples apart on the strength of his own word, the word of God. Look at verse 17. This is beautiful. This is the commission. This is a commissioning. I know it's the prayer, but he's commissioning his disciples here because he's praying this so that they can hear. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now, Jesus had already said that the word that he speaks is the word he gets from the Father. So when Jesus says about the Father's word and his word, it's one and the same. There's no disagreement between the word of the Father and the word of the Son. Same word. So sanctify them Disciples, in your truth, your word is truth. 
And here's where he gives this commissioning statement. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And here's the strength of it. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. You see the power of this? That word sanctify, by the way, the word consecrate, those are the same word in the original language. So Jesus says he consecrate, you might say he sanctifies himself. It's that same root word for holy. It means set apart from the common for what is for God. So taking something out of the common, setting it apart for God. It also has the idea, which doesn't apply to Jesus, of cleansing and purification. Jesus didn't need to be cleansed or purified, but he was set apart. You see, Jesus consecrated, that is to say, he set himself apart for the sake of his disciples so that they could be set apart for his holy service. He didn't ask them to make an oath. Jesus made the oath. Jesus is the one on whom the commission rests. And in a sense, as soon as he spoke it, it's not even optional. Look at another passage with me. Just before Jesus ascended to heaven, he told his disciples what to expect. It was not a question. It was not even a command. It was simply a statement of fact. Acts 1.8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. You see the, the wording there? You will be. That's, just, that's, that's what's going to happen because the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. Jesus had already commissioned them by the power of his own word. He had, effect, in effect, by his own life, made the oath of their commissioning. Now, that's not to say that the commission is not a command. It is. But the strength of it, the success of it, rests entirely on Jesus. Look at Matthew 28. I'll read it for us. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus says. Now, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You see what's happening here? Jesus has the authority. And then in the end, Jesus says, I am with you. The commission is one that he entirely empowers. Jesus gave this commission to his disciples and it's a mission of words. Jesus' words about Jesus' own life. The shorthand for that we call the gospel. As I was thinking about this, and one of the reasons for my, maybe my despair over the last several weeks is just thinking about the church. How are we supposed to do the Great Commission right now? It feels hard. We're out in the public, and everybody looks at each other like there's some kind of potential for infection. Feel the distance. It feels so antithetical to what we're supposed to be doing in the world. We're supposed to be the salt and light, and I know we can be. It used to be that we, used to be, and I, I trust we'll get there. And, and I know, temporary, temporary. We throw the doors open. Come one, come all. Hear the gospel of Jesus. But 
even our own people, at this point are not permitted at, in full freedom to come. And so I, I was thinking, Lord, how do we do this thing you've called us to do? How do we do it? And then I realized the strength of the commission doesn't rest on our own ingenuity. Now I'm praying, Lord, show us what to do. Hopefully this camera will get to some people. And as things open up, perhaps we'll have more opportunities for contact. But it's Jesus' mission. He owns it. And through all of the centuries since he spoke this to his disciples, whether the church has been faithful in doing what the church ought to do or not, the mission has continued because he's in charge of it and he's going to make it happen. So, even as I'm sharing this with you, my confidence in what Jesus will do is increasing because he's doing it. Yes, he's sending his disciples. Yes, he's sending them into the world as he had been sent by the Father. But it all, it all rests on Jesus. Jesus spoke and revealed God. Do you know God? Have you turned to him through Jesus, the Son of God, who died in your place and rose again on the third day? If you want to know God, know Jesus. Turn to him today. I plead with you, if you have not, do so. Look to Jesus for the unity of his people. Keep our focus on the Lord Jesus. That's how we maintain unity for the sake of the mission he's called us to. When joy is challenged, when you're feeling discouraged, Look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy before him endured the cross. Jesus' word protects us from evil. Take refuge in it. And because Jesus commissions his disciples by his word, that mission will never die. And it will be completed. And one day the Lord Jesus will return with a shout. And that mission will be complete when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So I thank God for his word. I thank God for Jesus' prayer and the confidence of knowing what Jesus' words accomplish because he is the living word. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful that your son has spoken. If he had not spoken, I'd be lost. We'd all be lost. Oh, Lord, give me, give me the grace, give us all the grace to love what he has said. We want to be like him. We sang that a few moments ago. And we know that happens by giving our whole attention to the Lord Jesus. So he's the one we exalt, Father. And we know that delights you. May Christ be glorified.
We pray it in his name. Amen.